Well, today is indeed a special Lord's Day. We're having our communion service in our second hour. As a church, we try to. We, it is our, one of our aspirations to have a high view of all things that pertain to Scripture. High view of God, high view of Scripture, high view of salvation. And most definitely, we want to have a high view of communion. An ordinance given to us by the Lord on the night of His death that we should remember this, we should um, partake of the elements and remember His sacrifice on the cross. And to do this, for that end, we need to make sure, to our best of our abilities, that the participants are professing believers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, if it is your first time visiting us, we want to warmly welcome you to our fellowship, to our service. And if you are a believer, follower of Christ, we want to welcome you to our family meal of sorts, to communion. And to do that, we ask you to meet with our welcoming ministry so that they would go over the gospel with you, hear your testimony, and to personally invite you to partake, partake of the elements with us. They'll be meeting to my right after the service, and we encourage you, we ask you to join us this day. Well, thank you, Huey, for reading us all of uh, John chapter 9. I don't think we'll get to the whole um, chapter this morning. We'll get through as much as we can. Today's passage, by our reading, I'm sure you're aware as well, this passage records for us one of the greatest miracles of Jesus Christ during His ministry. If you look down at verse 32, that verse sums up the significance of the healing of this blind man. Blind man says, nev- said, never since the world began had it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. It's never been heard of. Someone who was born blind regaining sight through a miraculous healing. In fact, in all the Old Testament, all the Old Testament, there is not a single instance of a blind man gaining sight. Not even once. God performed Numerous miracles through Moses, he never gave sight to a man who was blind. Prophets of God, men like Elijah, Elisha, and Daniel performed many miracles, but never gave sight to the blind. In fact, in the Old Testament, giving sight to the blind is associated distinctly with God himself. It is highlighted as a function of God, a divine function. Exodus 4.11, God says to Moses, the Lord says to Moses, who gives him sight to those who are blind? Psalm 146.8, the Lord gives sight to the blind. In fact, in Isaiah 29.18, it is pointed out that it is a messianic activity. When the anointed one, the Christ, when the promised one comes, one of the distinctive features of the Messiah is that he will give sight to the blind. Isaiah 29:18. In that day, the deaf will hear, the darkness of the eyes, the blind eyes will see. Isaiah 35:5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Isaiah 42.7, Isaiah pointing to that day when the Messiah comes and he says that the Messiah will come to open the eyes that are blind. 
So this miracle is a significant miracle. Of all the miracles that Jesus performed, John says in 2031, it could fill all the books of the world. But he chose seven. And out of that seven, he chose this one in John 9 because it is so significant that Jesus Christ would give sight to a man who was blind. It is a divine function. A function for God's own Messiah. It is worthy to note that the disciples were given authority to drive out demons. In Luke chapter 10, they came back all excited because demons were fleeing from their authority, from their presence. And and yet the disciples were never given the authority to give sight to the blind. Jesus alone fulfills this function. And it is highlighted here in John chapter 9. Now in light of this, this blind beggar knows the significance of this healing. It's never even been heard of. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, of course they understood the significance of this miracle. So you would think that this would settle the question whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. You would think it would be a foregone conclusion among the crowds, among the leaders of Israel, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. I mean, how could they doubt it? It's got to be Him. I mean, we'll study it in weeks to come, but it is... The evidence is irrefutable. The evidence is incontestable. I mean, talk about an eyewitness account. This is not one of those uh, psychosomatic healings. It is not like healing of stress or arthritis or an internal organ that was unverifiable. It is not a healing where it was restored from something that that was damaged. He was born blind. He's never seen anything in his whole life. And the account is not a testimony of a second or a third person account. Here is the man saying, I am he. I was blind, but now I can see. I mean, it is irrefutable evidence. And yet, the leaders of Israel are unconvinced. They are entrenched in their disbelief. I mean, you would think everyone would affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. But they didn't. They were so locked in in their ignorant unbelief that our Lord, beginning from chapter 9, begins to reject the leaders of Israel. John chapter 9 is the crux of the Gospel of John. Up to this time, the leaders of Israel were rejecting Christ. Starting from this point on, our Lord is making that turn. He's signaling the turn. He's turning his wheel, he begins to reject the leaders. He gives them over to their unbelief. Just like what Paul mentions in Romans 1. When God looks at humanity and God sees how in perversion they reject God. And God in response to man's rejection, what does God do? Paul says God gives them over. God gives them over. God gives them over three times to a reprobate mind, right? To unbelief. To a stubborn rejection of the truth of God. And this is exactly what's happening in John chapter 9. Up to John chapter 8, our Lord is defending His claims. He's declaring His identity. He's saying He has come from the Father. He shows, He manifests His works plainly before all to see. 
starting from John chapter 9, when, when he sees the rejection of this significant miracle, of the blind man being healed, our Lord abandons them. Starting in John chapter 10, he begins to gather his flock of believers. He separates them from the masses. He begins to nourish them and prepare them for his departure in a few months. So in a sense, John 9 is a real crux in the Gospel of John. He moves away from the mass of Israel, the unbelieving Jewish leaders, and he confirms their rejection by rejecting them. Well, let's go to John chapter 9. All 41 verses deal with this one account, this one miracle. Um, This morning, we're not going to go through all 41 verses, I promise. We're going to just go through the first 12 verses of John 9 and consider four things. The problem. What was the problem? The man's blindness. Secondly, the purpose of this man's blindness. That is so huge. I hope that our hearts are, are, are tender to the words of God this morning as we consider the purpose of suffering in this world. Thirdly, we'll look at the power of Jesus. And finally, the perplexity of the people. Four Ps. Problem, purpose, power, perplexity. There'll be a quiz during communion. Okay? Well, let's look at the problem. John 9, 1. As he passed by, he, meaning Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. Now, we need to know, go back one verse to John eight fifty nine, And we see that our Lord was leaving the temple. Why? Because after all his claims, in the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they had it. When he said, before Abraham I am, they picked up stones to, to kill him that instant. So our Lord was leaving the temple for his life, because his time has not yet come. As Jesus was exiting the temple, he saw a man afflicted with congenital blindness. Blindness from birth. Now we learn later on that he was there because he was begging for money. He wasn't just a blind man. He was a blind man and was there as a beggar. The affliction of blindness brought with it a helplessness that pushed him into the ranks of the beggars. Even though his parents were still alive, his family was so poor, they had sent their son out to go and beg for money, beg for food, so that he and the family might survive. So this man was doubly to be pitied. And he was blind from birth. He had never known anything else. He had no memory or no hope of better things. You know that man in John chapter 5, by the pool of Bethesda? That man had some hope, right? Because... He was waiting for the pool to be stirred so that he might be the first one in to be healed. So he was clinging to some hope that one day he might be healed. This blind man had no such hope. He was hopeless because he was blind from birth and he had never heard of such a miracle. So he wasn't there hoping for some kind of divine intervention. He was there just begging for money, begging for food, content, accepted his lot in life that he will die without seeing light, seeing anything in the world. What a pitiful situation. He's there begging for money. Now, you know, if you've traveled at all abroad, one of the things you will notice is this. 
that when you see um, homeless people on the drive home, you know, we're studying about a beggar this morning, so I was looking at all these highway uh, exits, and I saw two beggars this morning begging for money. We'll work for food or, or need help, you know, getting home or something. And a distinct difference between the homeless in America and the homeless abroad is just t- dramatic. I mean, here, you know, I read about reports where people who are in the soup kitchens getting free food, and you ask them, and they have cable TV, right? I mean, I don't have cable. They have cell phones, right? Um, we've handed out clothes to the homeless in Santa Ana where they said, man, I don't like this color. Man, this is kind of grungy. This is not my style, right? One time, brothers and I, some of the guys were moving, and this guy had a sign, work for food, and I said, hey, that's great. You know, we'll buy you lunch and dinner. Just help us move. And he said, no, no thanks. Right? When you go abroad, especially the poor countries, you realize they're, they're desperately poor. And you will know that many of those who are, are begging, they're begging because they're handicapped. They're on wheelchairs. They're paralyzed. They're deaf. They're mute. Some are blind. One of the most disturbing sights I've seen was in, was in China when I was there for a mission several years ago was when I saw children begging for money. And one thing I noticed was they crowded around places where tourists would be because that was an optimal spot. In fact, they would actually fight, vie for these spots where they knew tourists, foreigners would visit. Well, that's what's happening here. The temple area was a prime location for begging. If you were completely destitute, you would go to the temple because that's where pious people would gather. People were coming to, to worship God to sacrifice to God, to confess their sins. And they would, pl- they would pull on the heartstrings of these pilgrims and they would reach out asking for food or money. And it was a prime location. Same thing was happening in Acts chapter 3. Remember that? When Peter and John were going to the temple to pray, near the temple was a gate called Beautiful and this man who was paralyzed was there and he could actually see and he looked towards Peter. Through his eyes, Peter says he was communicating, uh, asking for something. And Peter responds, look at us. Silver or gold we don't have. What we have we'll give to the, the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. Well, that man in Acts 3 and this man in John 9 was in the same location near the temple. It was a common sight. And yet, as Jesus passed by with throngs of these Beggars lining the temple walls. Our Lord sees this particular blind man. And not like the priests and the Levites who circled the man in need. Not like the Pharisees and the members of the Sanhedrin who would ignore and neglect. It's easy to ignore a beggar who's blind. Because he doesn't see you. Your eyes don't meet. There's no way that man can... Direct his pleas towards you. It's easy to ignore that man. But our Lord, running for his life, he sees this blind man. And he slows his pace. And as our Lord slows his pace, and his attention is drawn towards this man, the disciples look upon this man as well. And what is somewhat disturbing to note is that what's in the disciples' hearts? And what's in Peter's heart, John, Matthew, Thomas, all these men, Andrew? What's stirring in their minds? Is it pity? Is it compassion? Are they digging in their pockets trying to help out this man? No. 
to the disciples, this blind man presented nothing but a theological puzzle. To them, they, they, they provoked in them a theological, philosophical question. Look at verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. That's it. Now, my first question is, how did they know he was born blind? I mean, if the Lord said this, our Lord is omniscient, we know that. But how did, how did Peter know this or John know this? Well, I believe that was the way he begged for money. That was the way he pleaded for mercy and, and, and gifts from passers-by. He would tell people that he was born blind, blind from birth. That was part of his begging ritual. Now for them, the disciples, it was clear to them that this was caused by sin, a, a, a person's sin. The question was not whether it was caused by sin. For them it was clear. The question was, was his blindness caused by his sin or his parents' sin? It was widely held that suffering, especially Illness such as blindness was due to sin. It was a thoroughly a Jewish mindset. We constantly find through uh, Jewish writings, rabbis, when they meet such unfortunate persons, how do they respond? How do rabbis respond? They respond by asking questions. Asking them what sin had they committed or what sin their parents had committed. They didn't respond with, with mercy and grace and compassion. They turned it into a theological debate. So the question was again, not whether sin caused this blindness, but whose sin caused this man's blindness, him or his parents. There were two uh, competing views at the time of Christ. One pro- proposed view by the rabbis was a doctrine of prenatal sin. Doctrine of Hittis, prenatal sin. The Jewish rabbis actually had a doctrine of prenatal sin because they needed consistency. They taught, they believed and taught that sin, that that illness or a calamity, like, like Job's friends or suffering, was caused by personal sin. And when a, when a child was born with with blindness or born with a defect, they need to be consistent. So they taught. That a child could sin in the womb. Right. Now, where do they get this from? Not in the scriptures. Not in the Bible. They just made it up. I mean, if you're going to have sin be the cause of a disease, and it wasn't the parents because the parents are godly, or you're the parent, they need to make something up. Oh, sinful baby in the womb. Kick mom one too many times. Right? That's, that's the reason. Bad embryo. Right. Well, the second and more popular teaching among the Jews was that the children were paying the consequences of the sins of the parents. It was a common Jewish view that the demerits of the parents would appear in the children. In fact, up to 13 years of age, a child was considered part of his father and suffering for his guilt. Right, at 13, they had the bar and mitzvah under the law. Before 13, they were under the father. And anything that occurred was the result of the parents' sins. 
Now, is there a biblical basis for this view? Many rabbis point to Exodus 20, verse 5. Now, I'll just read it for you. No need to turn there. Just one verse. Uh, the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 5, God says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, talking about idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And so Rabbi said right there, a father sins and the children suffer for third or even fourth generations. Now, let me add here that Exodus 25 is talking in a general sense and not a specific sense. God is not saying, Daddy sins, then Junior gets it. That is not what God is saying. We know this because God says Father is plural. Sin is generations. Plural, they pay. What does it mean? It means nationally, not individually. And it actually happened. This, this uh, warning actually came to pass. When Israel as a nation went into idolatry, and God punished Israel by scattering them, not just that generation that committed idolatry, but all the future generations. They were scattered throughout the world. They were exiled into Babylon and Assyria throughout the world. He's talking about national punishment. Israel, the ancestors, they sinned. They committed idolatry. And all the generations after that suffered enormously because of their sin. And that's, of course, true. Right? That happened. All those generations paid the consequences of the sins of their forefathers, but it's national, not individual. And it is made clear in Ezekiel 18. If you'll turn with me, to Ezekiel 18. The prophet Ezekiel um, explains once and for all that God is not talking about the particular sins of the father and the son getting punished, but it is national. God doesn't operate like that. God will not punish someone for their parents' sins. Ezekiel 18.1 Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's a popular proverb. What does it mean? What happens when you eat sour grapes? Right? Yeah, that's right. Doreen has a good face. That's exactly it. Right? So, a father eats sour grapes, and the children pay. And this proverb was common in the land of Israel. God says, As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Go down to verse 20. The soul who sins shall die, and it is clearly declared, the Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Is God through Ezekiel makes it clear that individually you are responsible solely before your own sins. So go back to the, the Gospel of John, 
chapter 9. I mean, the disciples are ignorant of Exodus 18. They have a wrong understanding of Ezekiel 18, wrong understanding of Exodus 20, mired in the false thinking of, of Jewish leaders at the time. They ask the wrong presupposition, the wrong-headed question. Our Lord answers them. I mean, I mean, it's consistent with Ezekiel. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. And then he gives the purpose of this man's suffering condition. This man is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, saints, let's read that one more time. This man's suffering so that the works of God might be revealed, displayed in him. This is awesome. This is amazing. Jesus here answers the question that philosophers, academic scholars, and all college students ask during finals, right? Why is there suffering, right? What is the purpose of pain? What is the purpose of hardship, of illness, of sickness? Why is there suffering? Christians, we're prone to do that as well, right? We see people going hungry. We read about them on newspaper. We see them on TV. We see them oppressed, suffering, alone, neglected. And then we sit back in our chairs and we consider the doctrine of suffering. The theology of suffering. We read book after book on theology and philosophy on suffering. We do a Bible conference on the reasons for suffering. Where, when the answer is clear, Jesus answers it in verse 3. The purpose of suffering is that God's work might be displayed. So we can conclude that every instance of suffering is an opportunity to glorify God by doing God's works. All things, all afflictions, all calamities, all trials have as their ultimate purpose the glory of God in Christ by means of doing God's work. Does that make sense? That's why they're suffering in this world. Every instance of pain and sorrow, in every situation, no matter how great the loss, how great the suffering, the purpose, the reason is to display the works of God. It's tremendous. It teaches us that when we confront suffering in our own lives, in the lives of people close to us, family members, friends, complete strangers. Our response is not to ask questions about suffering, not to read books. It's not to philosophize about suffering. We know the answer. Verse 3. Suffering exists so that we might do the works of God, so that God's work might be revealed, God's glory might be displayed. If people are hungry, it's an opportunity for us to feed them. If someone is without clothes, why are they without clothes? 
so that we can clothe them and glorify God. If children are neglected, vulnerable, threatened, if they're in need, they're orphaned, why? So that we can meet their need. Look at verse 4. God, Christ says, we must work the works of Him. He doesn't say, ah, He says, we. He says to His disciples, we must, must work. It is our work. It is the believer's work. Our Lord says the priority is such that we must work the works of Him. The compelling necessity of working the works of God. For Jesus, doing God's work is critical. Meeting needs, preaching the gospel, alleviating those who are suffering. There are heaven-sent works that believers are called to do. Now, this is how Jesus looks at life. This is how Jesus thinks. Right? The popular acronym is what? WWJD. What would Jesus do? No, let me pr- present a, a better acronym. Right? H-D-J-T. Right? <laughs> I don't think it's going to catch on, but if we keep on doing this, maybe you will. Uh, how did Jesus think? Right? H-D-J-T. I don't know. I come up with a better acronym than that. But how did Jesus think? When, how did Jesus view life? When he saw need, when he saw suffering, it was a must for him. It wasn't an option. Compassion, mercy, grace, pity wasn't for him. Extracurricular activities. Right? Helping those who are in need weren't like cherry on top. That was the work that God had called him to do. To proclaim the gospel, to save souls. He saw his whole life as a, as a work And importantly, he saw it as a work given to him by God the Father. He says, we must work the works of him. These work, the work that God has called us to do, the work that was given to us, was given to us, given to Christ and to us by the Father. Our Lord recognizes that these are the Father's works. He does not originate them. John 5.36, I am doing the very work that the Father has given me to finish. John 4.34, My food is to do His will and to finish whose work? Not my work, His work. This is how our Lord glorified God. John 17.4, I have brought you glory on on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. This is the work that God gave. And our Lord says, We must work the works of God. It's not just His responsibility, but all believers. The works of God. Not only is there a priority, but there is a compelling urgency about doing this work. Our Lord said, night is coming. We must work the works while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He was looking ahead. I will be handed over to the leaders of Israel. I will be crucified. I only have a few months left. He was looking ahead to the disciples. You only have several years left in your lives. 
night is coming. When night comes, when death comes, no more work. There's an urgency to do the works of God. As long as we are alive, believers are called to work for the Lord. Right? Philippians 1, 21 and 22, what does Paul say? He's in a dilemma. To die is gain. He's with Christ. If he lives, verse 22, this will mean fruitful labor for me. For for Paul, to live is to labor. To live is to work for Christ. Our Lord was saying, we don't have much time. It is daylight, but night is coming when we can't work. So there's an urgency to do the works of God. Reminds me of Ephesians 5.16. Where Paul says, redeem the time. Redeem it. Because the days are evil. He's saying, get at it. The time that you have, redeem it for the work of God. Service of His kingdom. There's a spiritual implication for all of us here. That we only have one life, one time to work. That's all we have. This is our one time, one opportunity, where we have the opportunity to glorify God and serve Him. Our Lord is saying, here is this man who needs light. Let's go and and meet that need. Our Lord is running away from death threats. And here He is trying to meet the needs of others. If anybody could have sat back and depended on the sovereignty of God, it was Jesus. He could have relaxed. God is sovereign. It's okay. God in His time will give Him sight. No. Our Lord was saying, let's work. Let's work. We've got a blind man. Let's give him sight. Let's give him sight so that he might see. Notice the urgency in Jesus' attitude. He knew that the end was coming and he was in a hurry. That is his example and that is his command to us. Brothers and sisters, let me give you give it to you as simply as I, as I can. God has given to each of us work to do for Him. God-given work. God has given it to you individually. You're not working for the church. You're not working for the pastors or the elders. You're not working for even for yourself. This is, the, this is God's work. And He has given it to you. That responsibility is squarely on your shoulders. And you only have one life. That's it. When you die, you can never serve God again. You can never again preach the gospel, never again feed the hungry, never again clothe the naked, never again meet those who are in prison, never again. It's over. And every time, therefore, when we come across a need, suffering, someone who is in pain, it is an opportunity for us to do the works of God. Therefore, Jesus is saying to the disciples and to us, get to work. Get busy. Clean up your life. Get rid of the garbage. Shape up. As Peter was, Peter Smith would say, cut the fat out. Get rid of sin. Get rid of that worldliness, the compromise. Stop acting silly. Doing silly things. And one of the things, I saw Peter Smith raise his boys. They're allowed to play around, play soccer, run around, do 
push-ups, jumping jacks. Like he didn't want his sons to act silly. Because they're boys, but they're becoming men. Act like men. Life is serious. Life is work. The work of serving God. That's what Christ is saying to us. To stop wasting our time flirting around with the world. There is no place in this Christian life for the things of this world. Our Lord is saying to us, get busy. There is work to be done. So many Christians today are preoccupied with thin things, spurious, temporal things. Preoccupied with making money, with entertaining themselves. The greatest burden of life is being bored. Right? The greatest like calamity. Well, I'm bored. Like boredom is some kind of like sin. Some kind of weight upon a person's heart. So many Christians are lazy, slothful, and doing nothing. Our Lord is calling them and He calls us to do the work of God. He says, as long as I'm in the world, He says to His disciples, I don't know about you guys, but for me, as long as I'm in the world, no matter that I'm being pursued, my life is, is being sought after, I am the light of the world, as long as I'm in this world. Having said this to the disciples, one of the greatest miracles in all the scriptures happened, verse 6. Our Lord, I don't know why He did this. There is no reason. Our commentators try to make up some reason. We have no, our Lord wanted to. He spat on the ground, he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and he came back seeing. God heals him. God heals him. In an instant, he can see. Now consider this here in this picture of this blind man born with blindness, we see something beautiful here. We see a perfect display of God's saving grace. We see a perfect picture of how sinners are saved. We see a picture of how you and I were saved. This blind man, he couldn't have seen Jesus. No way. He couldn't have seen Him. He wouldn't have known Jesus if He had walked right by Him. Wouldn't have had any idea about it. But that's what sovereign grace is. Sovereign grace dominates this whole miracle. This man is not running to Christ. He's not seeking Christ. Oh, Jesus, help me, heal me. No. Jesus is the initiator of this miracle. He is the author. Jesus saw him. Jesus seeks him out. And that's the picture of sovereign grace. We were blind. We were absolutely blind. We had no capacity to see God. We had no capacity to seek after God. We were incapacitated. We were stone blind. We were spiritually speaking helpless, without hope. We couldn't see. And like, like way, Christ sought after us. You know what? I think this is a good illustration of sin as there is anywhere in the New Testament. The character of blindness is such that it makes a man totally helpless. Physical blindness 
perfectly depicts spiritual blindness. Because man is spiritually blind, we cannot recognize God. We cannot recognize truth. We cannot recognize Christ. We are blind to spiritual reality. So again, we did not seek Him. He sought after us. And that is exactly how grace works. Lost man, he's blind, does not see God, does not see Christ, does not see truth, knows no love, does not see anything. But here comes Jesus, and He sees us. He sees us blind, pitiful, hopeless, and Christ has compassion in His heart. With love in His heart, He comes over, He offers grace, and He releases us from blindness, enabling us to be saved. A perfect picture of our salvation. Now in verse 7, our Lord called this man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. We see this man obediently going and washing his eyes. I believe this is a mark of true faith. In this man, we see the obedience of faith. When the Savior placed the moistened clay upon his eyes and asked him to go to the pool, he didn't say, no, I just want money. No, I just want something from you. He didn't say that. He had heard about Christ. Later testimony reveals that. And because God granted him faith, to trust in Christ. He obeyed Christ. He didn't brush him off. Even though he had never heard of, a blind, of the blind gaining sight, he obeyed as an act of faith. And when he washed his eyes, for the first time in his life, he saw water. For the first time, he saw the reflection of his own face on the water. For the first time, he looked up and he saw the sky. He saw the sunset. He saw the hills of Jerusalem. And most of all, he longed to see the faces of his parents. What is the first thing he he does? He goes to his family, goes to his neighborhood. He goes home. He wanted to see the people he loved, so he comes home. He comes running and he's seeing. The neighbors are perplexed. Here's the perplexity. They can't understand this. They say in verse 8, Is not this he that sat and begged? What is he doing running around? Where is he going? How is it that he can see? Verse 9, he sums it up. This is he. And he says, I am he. They can't imagine. They're filled with joy. They're filled with excitement. They ask him, How were your eyes open?" It says in verse 11, pointedly, matter-of-factly, the man called Jesus made mud. He anointed my eyes and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and he received my sight. They asked him, where is this man? Jesus, he said, I do not know. We end with the perplexity of the people even this man who was healed. Well, we'll stop here from now. We'll pick up next week. But just a few concluding thoughts for all of us here. There's so, 
so much here that applies to us, but I want to just focus our time to how Christ responds to suffering. Whether it be it's physical suffering or spiritual suffering, our Lord declares that the purpose of suffering is to display God's work. And therefore, he applies it. We must work the works of God. So every instance of suffering is an opportunity for us to glorify God with our service. Do we realize? Do you realize that God has certain work for you to do? That it's His work? It is the Father's work given to you? Do you realize it is a must? It is an imperative? Do you realize the priority of this work? Do you realize the urgency with which we need to tackle this work? Time is short. Time is ebbing away. Night is coming. Do we realize that? That God has given us this. Too many Christians today are preoccupied with the wrong things. Their must, their imperative are on the wrong things. They're urgent about the wrong things. Brothers and sisters, it's time to get to work. Time to serve Christ. Proclaim the gospel and meet physical needs. You know, to the degree we evangelize, we need to go out there in the world and meet needs, physical needs as well. Because that's the work of God. While it is still day, the day is nearly over, night is coming, we, we are called to do the works of God. Our Father, we are stirred by the example of Christ and the words of Christ. Lord, help us to think like the Lord. May we think thoughts after Him, seeing every opportunity in the world when we see suffering and hardship and heartache, to take responsibility, to know that it was given to us for us to meet, the, meet, the, meet these needs. Whether it be someone who is without Christ needing the gospel, whether it's someone who is hungry, who is suffering, who is without clothes or in prison, whatever the need might be, may we have the, the priority, the urgency of knowing that we must do this work. Lord, may we shine as light in this world. May we abound in good works so that when you return, many will glorify you. How will they glorify you? By by becoming Christians. They will see our good deeds. They will see the works of God being done in our midst. And it will bring power to the gospel. And they will turn and be saved and trust in you. We thank you for these words. We thank you for the example of Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.